This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. The Innocents Abroad by Mark Twain, Chapter Twenty Six. The Modern Roman on His Travels. The Grandeur of St. Peter's. Holy Relics. Grand View from the Dome. The Holy Inquisition. Interesting Old Monkish Frauds. The Ruined Colosseum. The Colosseum in the Days of Its Prime. Ancient Playbill of a Colosseum Performance. A Roman Newspaper Criticism, Seventeen Hundred Years Old. What is it that confers the noblest delight? What is that which swells a man's breast with pride above that which any other experience can bring to him? Discovery. To know that you are walking where none others have walked, that you are beholding what human eye has not seen before, that you are breathing a virgin atmosphere, to give birth to an idea, to discover a great thought, an intellectual nugget, right under the dust of a field that many a brain plough had gone over before, to find a new planet, to invent a new hinge, to find the way to make the lightnings carry your messages, to be the first, that is the idea, to do something, say something, see something, before anybody else. These are the things that confer a pleasure compared with which other pleasures are tame and commonplace, other ecstasies cheap and trivial. Morse, with his first message, brought by his servant, the lightning. Fulton, in that long-drawn century of suspense, when he placed his hand upon the throttle-valve, and lo, the steamboat moved. Jenner, when his patient with the cow's virus in his blood, walked through the smallpox hospitals unscathed. How, when the idea shot through his brain that for a hundred and twenty generations the eye had been bored through the wrong end of the needle, the nameless lord of art who laid down his chisel in some old age that is forgotten now, and gloated upon the finished Laocoon, Daguerre, when he commanded the sun riding in the zenith to print the landscape upon his insignificant silvered plate, and he obeyed. Columbus, in the Pinta's shrouds, when he swung his hat above a fabled sea, and gazed abroad upon an unknown world. These are the men who have really lived, who have actually comprehended what pleasure is, who have crowded long lifetimes of ecstasy into a single moment. What is there in Rome for me to see that others have not seen before me? What is there for me to touch that others have not touched? What is there for me to feel, to learn, to hear, to know, that shall thrill me before it pass to others? What can I discover? Nothing. Nothing whatsoever. One charm of travel dies here, but if I were only a Roman, if, added to my own, I could be gifted with modern Roman sloth, modern Roman superstition, and modern Roman boundlessness of ignorance, what bewildering worlds of unsuspected wonders I would discover! Ah, if I were only a habitat of the Campania Five, and twenty miles from Rome, then I would travel! I would go to America, and see, and learn, and return to the Campania, and stand before my countrymen an illustrious discoverer. I would say, I saw there a country which has no overshadowing mother church, and yet the people survive. 
I saw a government which never was protected by foreign soldiers at a cost greater than that required to carry on the government itself. I saw common men and common women who could read. I even saw small children of common country people reading from books. If I dared think you would believe it, I would say they could write also. In the cities I saw people drinking a delicious beverage made of chalk and water, but never once saw goats driven through their Broadway or their Pennsylvania Avenue or their Montgomery Street and milked at the door of the houses. I saw real glass windows in the houses of even the commonest people. Some of the houses are not of stone, nor yet of bricks. I solemnly swear they are made of wood. Houses there will take fire and burn sometimes. Actually, they burn entirely down, and not leave a single vestige behind. I could state that for a truth upon my deathbed, and as a proof that the circumstance is not rare, I aver that they have a thing which they call a fire-engine, which vomits forth great streams of water, and is kept always in readiness, by night and by day, to rush to houses that are burning. You would think one engine would be sufficient, but some great cities have a hundred. They keep men hired, and pay them by the month to do nothing but put out fires. For a certain sum of money other men will ensure that your house shall not burn down, and if it burns they will pay you for it. There are hundreds and thousands of schools, and anybody may go and learn to be wise, like a priest. In that singular country, if a rich man dies a sinner, he is damned. He cannot buy salvation with money for masses. There is really not much use in being rich there, not much use as far as the other world is concerned, but much, very much use as concerns this, because there, if a man be rich, he is very greatly honored, and can become a legislator, a governor, a general, a senator, no matter how ignorant an ass he is. Just as in our beloved Italy the nobles hold all the great places, even though sometimes they are born noble idiots. There, if a man be rich, they give him costly presents, they ask him to feasts, they invite him to drink complicated beverages. But if he be poor and in debt, they require him to do that which they term to settle. The women put on a different dress almost every day. The dress is usually fine, but absurd in shape. The very shape and fashion of it changes twice in a hundred years, and did I but covet to be called an extravagant falsifier, I would say it changed even oftener. Hair does not grow upon the American women's heads. It is made for them by cunning workmen in the shops, and is curled and frizzled into scandalous and ungodly forms. Some persons wear eyes of glass, which they see through with facility, perhaps, else they would not use them and in the mouths of some are teeth made by the sacrilegious hand of man. The dress of the men is laughably grotesque. They carry no musket in ordinary life, nor no long-pointed pole. They wear no wide green-lined cloak. They wear no peaked black felt hat, no leathern gaiters reaching to the knee, no goatskin breeches with the hair side out, no hob-nailed shoes, no prodigious spurs. They wear a conical hat termed a nail-cag, a coat of saddest black, a shirt which shows dirt so easily that it has to be changed every month, and is very troublesome. Things called pantaloons, which are held up by shoulder-straps, and on their feet they wear boots, which are ridiculous in pattern and can stand nowhere. Yet, dressed in this fantastic garb, these people laughed at my costume. In that country, 
books are so common that it is really no curiosity to see one. Newspapers also. They have a great machine which prints such things by thousands every hour. I saw common men there, men who were neither priests nor princes, who yet absolutely owned the land they tilled. It was not rented from the church, nor from the nobles. I am ready to take my oath of this. In that country you might fall from a third-story window several times, and not mash either a soldier or a priest. The scarcity of such people is astonishing. In the cities you will see a dozen civilians for every soldier, and as many for every priest or preacher. Jews there are treated just like human beings instead of dogs. They can work at any business they please. They can sell brand-new goods if they want to. They can keep drug-stores. They can practice medicine among Christians. They can even shake hands with Christians if they choose. They can associate with them just the same as one human being does with another human being. They don't have to stay shut up in one corner of the towns. They can live in any part of the town they like best. It is said they even have the privilege of buying land and houses, and owning them themselves, though I doubt that myself. They never have had to run races naked through the public streets, against jackasses, to please the people in carnival time. There they never have been driven by the soldiers into a church every Sunday for hundreds of years to hear themselves and their religion especially and particularly cursed. At this very day, in that curious country, a Jew is allowed to vote, hold office, yea, get up on a rostrum in the public street, and express his opinion of the government, if the government don't suit him. Ah, it is wonderful! The common people there know a great deal. They even have the effrontery to complain if they are not properly governed, and to take hold and help conduct the government themselves. If they had laws like ours, which give one dollar of every three a crop produces to the government for taxes, they would have that law altered. Instead of paying thirty-three dollars in taxes out of every one hundred they receive, they complain if they have to pay seven. They are curious people. They do not know when they are well off. Mendicant priests do not prowl among them with baskets begging for the church and eating up their substance. One hardly ever sees a minister of the gospel going around there in his bare feet with a basket begging for subsistence. In that country the preachers are not like our mendicant orders of friars. They have two or three suits of clothing, and they wash sometimes. In that land are mountains far higher than the Alban mountains. The vast Roman Campania, a hundred miles long and full forty broad, is really small compared to the United States of America. The Tiber, that celebrated river of ours, which stretches its mighty course almost two hundred miles, and which a lad can scarcely throw a stone across at Rome, is not so long, nor yet so wide, as the American Mississippi, nor yet the Ohio, nor even the Hudson. In America the people are absolutely wiser, and know much more than their grandfathers did. They do not plough with a sharpened stick, nor yet with a three-cornered block of wood that merely scratches the top of the ground. We do that because our fathers did, three thousand years ago, I suppose. But those people have no holy reverence for their ancestors. They plough with a plough that is a sharp, curved blade of iron, and it cuts into the earth full five inches. And this is not all. They cut their grain with a horrid machine that mows down whole fields in a day. If I dared, I would say that sometimes they use a blasphemous plough that works by fire and vapour, and tears up an acre of ground in a single hour. But—but—but but, 
I see by your looks that you do not believe the things I am telling you. Alas, my character is ruined, and I am a branded speaker of untruths. Of course we have been to the monster church of St. Peter frequently. I knew its dimensions. I knew it was a prodigious structure. I knew it was just about the length of the capital at Washington, say, seven hundred and thirty feet. I knew it was three hundred and sixty-four feet wide, and consequently wider than the capital. I knew that the cross on the top of the dome of the church was four hundred and thirty-eight feet above the ground, and therefore about a hundred or maybe a hundred and twenty-five feet higher than the dome of the capital. Thus I had one gauge. I wished to come as near forming a correct idea of how it was going to look as possible. I had a curiosity to see how much I would err. I erred considerably. St. Peter's did not look nearly so large as the capital, and certainly not a twentieth part as beautiful from the outside. When we reached the door and stood fairly within the church, it was impossible to comprehend that it was a very large building. I had to cipher a comprehension of it. I had to ransack my memory for some more similes. St. Peter's is bulky. Its height and size would represent two of the Washington capitals set one on top of the other, if the capital were wider, or two blocks or two blocks and a half of ordinary buildings set one on top of the other. St. Peter's was that large, but it could and would not look so. The trouble was that everything in it and about it was on such a scale of uniform vastness that there were no contrasts to judge by, none but the people, and I had not noticed them. They were insects. The statues of children holding vases of holy water were immense, according to the tables of figures, but so was everything else around them. The mosaic pictures in the dome were huge, and were made of thousands and thousands of cubes of glass, as large as the end of my little finger, but those pictures looked smooth and gaudy of color, and in good proportion to the dome. Evidently they would not answer to measure by. Away down toward the far end of the church, I thought it was really clear at the far end, but discovered afterward that it was in the center under the dome stood the thing they call the baldacchino, a great bronze pyramidal framework like that which upholds a mosquito-bar. It only looked like a considerably magnified bedstead, nothing more, yet I knew it was a good deal more than half as high as Niagara Falls. It was overshadowed by a dome so mighty that its own height was snubbed. The four great square piers, or pillars, that stand equidistant from each other in the church, and support the roof, I could not work up to their real dimensions by any method of comparison. I knew that the faces of each were about the width of a very large dwelling-house front, fifty or sixty feet, and that they were twice as high as an ordinary three-story dwelling. But still they looked small. I tried all the different ways I could think of to compel myself to understand how large St. Peter's was, but with small success. The mosaic portrait of an apostle who was writing with a pen six feet long seemed only an ordinary apostle. But the people attracted my attention after a while. To stand in the door of St. Peter's and look at men down toward its further extremity, two blocks away, has a diminishing effect on them surrounded by the prodigious pictures and statues, and lost in the vast spaces, they look very much smaller than they would if they stood two blocks away in the open air. I averaged a man as he passed me, and watched him as he drifted far down by the baldacchino and beyond, 
watched him dwindle to an insignificant schoolboy, and then, in the midst of the silent throng of human pygmies gliding about him, I lost him. The church had lately been decorated, on the occasion of a great ceremony in honor of St. Peter, and men were engaged now in removing the flowers and gilt paper from the walls and pillars. As no ladders could reach the great heights, the men swung themselves down from the balustrades and the capitals of pilasters by ropes to do this work. The upper gallery which encircles the inner sweep of the dome is two hundred and forty feet above the ground of the church. Very few steeples in America could reach up to it. Visitors always go up there to look down into the church, because one gets the best idea of some of the heights and distances from that point. While we stood on the floor, one of the workmen swung loose from that gallery at the end of a long rope. I had not supposed before that a man could look so much like a spider. He was insignificant in size, and his rope seemed only a thread. Seeing that he took up so little space, I could believe the story, then, that ten thousand troops went to St. Peter's once, to hear a mass, and their commanding officer came afterward, and not finding them, supposed they had not yet arrived. But they were in the church, nevertheless. They were in one of the transepts. Nearly fifty thousand persons assembled in St. Peter's to hear the publishing of the dogma of the Immaculate Conception. It is estimated that the floor of the church affords standing room for, for a large number of people. I have forgotten the exact figures, but it is no matter. It is near enough. They have twelve small pillars in St. Peter's, which came from Solomon's temple. They have also, which was far more interesting to me, a piece of the true cross, and some nails, and a part of the crown of thorns. Of course, we ascended to the summit of the dome, and, of course, we also went up into the gilt copper ball, which is above it. There was room there for a dozen persons, with a little crowding, and it was as close and hot as an oven. Some of those people, who are so fond of writing their names in prominent places, had been there before us, a million or two, I should think. From the dome of St. Peter's one can see every notable object in Rome, from the castle of St. Angelo to the Colosseum. He can discern the seven hills upon which Rome is built. He can see the Tiber, and the locality of the bridge which Horatius kept in the brave days of old, when Lars Porcena attempted to cross it with his invading host. He can see the spot where the Horatii and the Curatii fought their famous battle. He can see the broad green Campania, stretching away toward the mountains, with its scattered arches and broken aqueducts of the olden time, so picturesque in their grey ruin, and so daintily festooned with vines. He can see the Alban Mountains, the Apennines, the Sabine Hills, and the blue Mediterranean. He can see a panorama that is varied, extensive, beautiful to the eye, and more illustrious in history than any other in Europe. About his feet is spread the remnant of a city that once had a population of four million souls, and among its massed edifices stand the ruins of temples, columns, and triumphal arches that knew the Caesars and the noonday of Roman splendor and close by them, in unimpaired strength, is a drain of arched and heavy masonry that belonged to that older city which stood here before Romulus and Remus were born or Rome thought of. The Appian Way is here yet, and looking much as it did, perhaps, when the triumphal processions of the emperors moved over it in other days, bringing fettered princes from the confines of the earth. We cannot see the long array of chariots and mail-clad men laden with the spoils of conquest, but we can imagine the pageant, after a fashion. 
We look out upon many objects of interest from the dome of St. Peter's, and last of all, almost at our feet, our eyes rest upon the building which was once the Inquisition. How times changed between the older ages and the new! Some seventeen or eighteen centuries ago the ignorant men of Rome were wont to put Christians in the arena of the Colosseum yonder, and turn the wild beasts in upon them for a show. It was for a lesson as well. It was to teach the people to abhor and fear the new doctrine the followers of Christ were teaching. The beasts tore the victims limb from limb, and made poor mangled corpses of them in the twinkling of an eye. But when the Christians came into power, when the Holy Mother Church became mistress of the barbarians, she taught them the error of their ways by no such means. No, she put them in this pleasant inquisition, and pointed to the blessed Redeemer, who was so gentle and so merciful toward all men, and they urged the barbarians to love him. And they did all they could to persuade them to love and honor him, first by twisting their thumbs out of joint with a screw, then by snipping their flesh with pincers, red-hot ones, because they were the most comfortable in cold weather, then by skinning them alive a little, and finally by roasting them in public. They always convinced those barbarians the true religion properly administered, as the good mother church used to administer it, is very, very soothing. It is wonderfully persuasive also. There is a great difference between feeding parties to wild beasts and stirring up their finer feelings in an inquisition. One is the system of degraded barbarians, the other of enlightened, civilized people. It is a great pity the playful inquisition is no more. I prefer not to describe St. Peter's. It has been done before. The ashes of Peter, the disciple of the Saviour, repose in a crypt under the baldacchino. We stood reverently in that place. So did we also in the Mamertine prison, where he was confined, where he converted the soldiers, and where tradition says he caused a spring of water to flow in order that he might baptize them. But when they showed us the print of St. Peter's face in the hard stone of the prison wall, and said he made that by falling up against it, we doubted. And when also the monk at the church of St. Sebastian showed us a paving-stone with two great footprints in it, and said that Peter's feet made those, we lacked confidence again. Such things do not impress one. The monk said that angels came and liberated Peter from prison by night, and he started away from Rome by the Appian Way. The Saviour met him and told him to go back, which he did. Peter left those footprints in the stone upon which he stood at the time. It was not stated how it was ever discovered whose footprints they were, seeing the interview occurred secretly and at night. The print of the face in the prison was that of a man of common size. The footprints were those of a man ten or twelve feet high. The discrepancy confirmed our unbelief. We necessarily visited the Forum, where Caesar was assassinated, and also the Tarpeian Rock. We saw the dying gladiator at the Capitol, and I think that even we appreciated that wonder of art, as much, perhaps, as we did that fearful story wrought in marble in the Vatican, the Laocoon. And then the Colosseum. Everybody knows the picture of the Colosseum. Everybody recognizes at once that looped and windowed bandbox with a side bitten out. Being rather isolated, it shows to better advantage than any of the other monuments of ancient Rome. Even the beautiful Pantheon, whose pagan altars uphold the cross now, and whose Venus, tricked out in consecrated gimcracks, 
does reluctant duty as a Virgin Mary to-day, is built about with shabby houses, and its stateliness sadly marred. But the monarch of all European ruins, the Colosseum, maintains that reserve and that royal seclusion which is proper to majesty. Weeds and flowers spring from its massy arches and its circling seats, and vines hang their fringes from its lofty walls. An impressive silence broods over the monstrous structure where such multitudes of men and women were wont to assemble in other days. The butterflies have taken the places of the queens of fashion and beauty of eighteen centuries ago, and the lizards sun themselves in the sacred seat of the emperor. More vividly than all the written histories, the Colosseum tells the story of Rome's grandeur and Rome's decay. It is the worthiest type of both that exists. Moving about the Rome of to-day, we might find it hard to believe in her old magnificence and her millions of population, but with this stubborn evidence before us, that she was obliged to have a theatre with sitting-room for eighty thousand persons, and standing-room for twenty thousand more, to accommodate such of her citizens as required amusement, we find belief less difficult. The Colosseum is over one thousand six hundred feet long, seven hundred and fifty wide, and one hundred and sixty-five high. Its shape is oval. In America we make convicts useful at the same time that we punish them for their crimes. We farm them out and compel them to earn money for the state by making barrels and building roads. Thus we combine business with retribution, and all things are lovely. But in ancient Rome they combined religious duty with pleasure. Since it was necessary that the new sect called Christians should be exterminated, the people judged it wise to make this work profitable to the state at the same time, and entertaining to the public. In addition to the gladiatorial combats and other shows, they sometimes threw members of the hated sect into the arena of the Colosseum and turned wild beasts in upon them. It is estimated that seventy thousand Christians suffered martyrdom in this place. This has made the Colosseum holy ground in the eyes of the followers of the Saviour, and well it might, for if the chain that bound a saint, and the footprints a saint has left upon a stone he chanced to stand upon, be holy, surely the spot where a man gave up his life for his faith is holy. Seventeen or eighteen centuries ago this Colosseum was the theatre of Rome, and Rome was mistress of the world. Splendid pageants were exhibited here, in presence of the Emperor, the great ministers of state, the nobles, and vast audiences of citizens of smaller consequence. Gladiators fought with gladiators, and at times with warrior prisoners from many a distant land. It was the theatre of Rome, of the world, and the man of fashion who could not let fall in a casual and unintentional manner something about my private box at the Colosseum could not move in the first circles. When the clothing-store merchant wished to consume the corner grocery-man with envy, he bought secured seats in the front row, and let the thing be known. When the irresistible dry-goods clerk wished to blight and destroy, according to his native instinct, he got himself up regardless of expense, and took some other fellow's young lady to the Colosseum, and then accented the affront by cramming her with ice-cream between the acts or by approaching the cage and stirring up the martyrs with his whalebone cane for her edification. The Roman swell was in his true element only when he stood up against a pillar and fingered his moustache unconscious of the ladies. 
when he viewed the bloody combats through an opera-glass two inches long, when he excited the envy of provincials by criticisms which showed that he had been to the Colosseum many and many a time, and was long ago over the novelty of it, when he turned away with a yawn at last, and said, "'He, a star, handles his sword like an apprentice brigand. He'll do for the country, maybe, but he don't answer for the metropolis.' Glad was the contraband that had a seat in the pit at the Saturday matinee, and happy the Roman street-boy who ate his peanuts and guyed the gladiators from the dizzy gallery. For me was reserved the high honor of discovering among the rubbish of the ruined Colosseum the only playbill of that establishment now extant. There was a suggestive smell of mint-drops about it still. A corner of it had evidently been chewed, and on the margin, in choice Latin, these words were written in a delicate female hand. "'Meet me on the Tarpian Rock to-morrow evening, dear, at sharp seven. Mother will be absent on a visit to her friends in the Sabine Hills. Claudia.' Ah, where is that lucky youth to-day? And where the little hand that wrote those dainty lines? Dust and ashes these seventeen hundred years. Thus reads the bill. Roman Colosseum. Unparalleled attraction new properties, new lions, new gladiators, engagement of the renowned Marcus Marcellus Valerian, for six nights only. The management begged leave to offer to the public an entertainment surpassing in magnificence anything that has heretofore been attempted on any stage. No expense has been spared to make the opening season one which will be worthy the generous patronage which the management feels sure will crown their efforts. The management begged leave to state that they have succeeded in securing the services of a galaxy of talent, such as has not been beheld in Rome before. The performance will commence this evening with a grand broadsword combat between two young and promising amateurs and a celebrated Parthian gladiator who has just arrived a prisoner from the camp of Verus. This will be followed by a grand moral battle-axe engagement between the renowned Valerian, with one hand tied behind him, and two gigantic savages from Britain, after which the renowned Valerian, if he survives, will fight with the broadsword, left-handed, against six sophomores and a freshman from the gladiatorial college. A long series of brilliant engagements will follow, in which the finest talent of the empire will take part, after which the celebrated infant prodigy known as the Young Achilles will engage four tiger whelps in combat, armed with no other weapon than his little spear, the whole to conclude with a chaste and elegant general slaughter, in which thirteen African lions and twenty-two barbarian prisoners will war with each other until all are exterminated. Box office now open. Dress circle one dollar, children and servants half price. An efficient police force will be on hand to preserve order and keep the wild beasts from leaping the railings and discommoding the audience. Doors open at seven. Performance begins at eight. Positively no free list. Diodorous job press. It was as singular as it was gratifying that I was also so fortunate as to find among the rubbish of the arena a stained and mutilated copy of the Roman daily battle-axe, containing a critique upon this very performance. It comes to hand too late by many centuries to rank as news, and therefore I translate and publish it simply to show how very little the general style and phraseology of dramatic criticism 
has altered in the ages that have dragged their slow length along since the carriers laid this one damp and fresh before their Roman patrons. The opening season! Coliseum! Notwithstanding the inclemency of the weather, quite a respectable number of the rank and fashion of the city assembled last night, to witness the debut upon metropolitan boards of the young tragedian who has of late been winning such golden opinions in the amphitheatres of the provinces. Some sixty thousand persons were present, and, but for the fact that the streets were almost impassable, it is fair to presume that the house would have been full. His august majesty, the Emperor Aurelius, occupied the imperial box, and was the signature of all eyes. Many illustrious nobles and generals of the empire graced the occasion with their presence, and not the least among them was the young patrician lieutenant whose laurels, one in the ranks of the thundering legion, are still so green upon his brow. The cheer which greeted his entrance was heard beyond the Tiber. The late repairs and decorations add both to the comeliness and comfort of the Coliseum. The new cushions are a great improvement upon the hard marble seats we have been so long accustomed to. The present management deserve well of the public. They have restored to the Coliseum the gilding, the rich upholstery, and the uniform magnificence which old Coliseum frequenters tell us Rome was so proud of fifty years ago. The opening scene last night, the broadsword combat between two young amateurs, and a famous Parthian gladiator who was sent here a prisoner, was very fine. The elder of the two young gentlemen handled his weapon with a grace that marked the possession of extraordinary talent. His feint of thrusting, followed instantly by a happily delivered blow which unhelmeted the Parthian, was received with hearty applause. He was not thoroughly up in the backhanded stroke, but it was very gratifying to his numerous friends to know that in time practice would have overcome this defect. However, he was killed. His sisters, who were present, expressed considerable regret. His mother left the Coliseum. The other youth maintained the contest with such spirit as to call forth enthusiastic bursts of applause. When at last he fell a corpse, his aged mother ran screaming, with hair dishevelled and tears streaming from her eyes, and swooned away just as her hands were clutching at the railings of the arena. She was promptly removed by the police. Under the circumstances the woman's conduct was pardonable, perhaps, but we suggest that such exhibitions interfere with a decorum which should be preserved during the performances, and are highly improper in the presence of the Emperor. The Parthian prisoner fought bravely and well, and well he might, for he was fighting for both life and liberty. His wife and children were there to nerve his arm with their love, and to remind him of the old home he should see again if he conquered. When his second assailant fell, the woman clasped her children to her breast and wept for joy. But it was only a transient happiness. The captive staggered toward her, and she saw that the liberty he had earned was earned too late. He was wounded unto death. Thus the first act closed in a manner which was entirely satisfactory. The manager was called before the curtain, and returned his thanks for the honour done him, in a speech which was replete with wit and humour, and closed by hoping that his humble efforts to afford cheerful and instructive entertainment would continue to meet with the approbation of the Roman public. The star now appeared, and was received with vociferous applause, and the simultaneous waving of sixty thousand handkerchiefs. Marcus Marcellus Valerian, stage name, his real name is Smith, is a splendid specimen of physical development, and an artist of rare merit. His management of the battle-axe is wonderful. 
His gaiety and his playfulness are irresistible in his comic parts, and yet they are inferior to his sublime conception in the grave realm of tragedy. When his axe was describing fiery circles about the heads of the bewildered barbarians, in exact time with his springing body and his prancing legs, the audience gave way to uncontrollable bursts of laughter. But when the back of his weapon broke the skull of one, and almost in the same instant its edge clove the other's body in twain, the howl of enthusiastic applause that shook the building was the acknowledgment of a critical assemblage that he was a master of the noblest department of his profession. He has a fault, and we are sorry to even intimate that he has. It is that of glancing at the audience, in the midst of the most exciting moments of the performance, as if seeking admiration. The pausing in a fight to bow when bouquets are thrown to him is also in bad taste. In the great left-handed combat he appeared to be looking at the audience half the time, instead of carving his adversaries. And when he had slain all the sophomores, and was dallying with the freshmen, he stooped and snatched a bouquet as it fell, and offered it to his adversary at a time when a blow was descending which promised favorably to be his death-warrant. Such levity is proper enough in the provinces, we make no doubt, but it ill suits the dignity of the metropolis. We trust our young friend will take these remarks in good part, for we mean them solely for his benefit. All who know us are aware that although we are at times justly severe upon tigers and martyrs, we never intentionally offend gladiators. The infant prodigy performed wonders. He overcame his four tiger whelps with ease, and with no other hurt than the loss of a portion of his scalp. The general slaughter was rendered with a faithfulness to details which reflects the highest credit upon the late participants in it. Upon the whole, last night's performance shed honor not only upon the management, but upon the city that encourages and sustains such wholesome and instructive entertainments. We would simply suggest that the practice of vulgar young boys in the gallery of shying peanuts and paper pellets at the tigers, and saying hi and manifesting approbation or dissatisfaction by such observations as bully for the lion, and go it, gladdy, boots, speech, take a walk round the block, and so on, are extremely reprehensible, and the emperor is present, and ought to be stopped by the police. Several times last night, when the supernumeraries entered the arena to drag out the bodies, the young ruffians in the gallery shouted, Soup! Soup! And also, Oh, what a coat! And, Why don't you pad them shanks? And made use of various other remarks expressive of derision. These things are very annoying to the audience. A matinee for the little folks is promised for this afternoon, on which occasion several martyrs will be eaten by the tigers. The regular performance will continue every night till further notice. Material change of program every evening. Benefit of Valerian, Tuesday, 29th, if he lives. I have been a dramatic critic myself in my time, and I was often surprised to notice how much more I knew about Hamlet than Forrest did, and it gratifies me to observe now how much better my brethren of ancient times knew how a broadsword battle ought to be fought than the gladiators. End of chapter 26